Heavenly Father, we do thank you for godly men and women who have continued to teach your gospel over the centuries so that we are here able to understand the good news of Jesus Christ today. We thank you for our Christian brothers and sisters who have watched over the transmission of your word so that it is here before us today. Lord, we pray that we may not neglect the marvellous privilege that we have to examine the things that speak of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we may grow in a knowledge of him this morning and have a renewed sense of his presence and a desire to be with him for all eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, inheritances can be very important, particularly if they are large and they come to you. If you receive a large inheritance, it is not something that you will dismiss and not pay attention to because, of course, with a large inheritance, you may be able to pay off debt uh, that you have. You may be able to buy something significant that you have always wanted but never been able to have. Or you may be able to finally take that holiday overseas uh, that you would love to do but you cannot because financial constraints are upon you. But if an inheritance comes through, a particularly large one, then that can be immensely helpful for you to receive the things that you're after. Now, many times in the scriptures, an inheritance is promised to God's people. Many times in the scriptures, we hear about an inheritance. And that is what we're going to be looking at today in Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, we learn about an inheritance that is promised to God's people. I encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to page 1190 as we look through this passage from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, down to verse 28. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, please go and grab one uh, because I guarantee you'll be a little bored probably for the first half of the message at least as we unpack this passage together. Verse 15 reads, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. An inheritance is mentioned in verse 15, and this is not the only place in the scriptures that an inheritance is promised to God's people. There are many places in the Bible that speaks of the inheritance that God gives to his people. But what do you need to get this inheritance? What do you need to get any inheritance? Well, you need a will. You need someone to make a promise that they are going to give you a particular possession or a particular bank account, the money that is within that, that will come to you. And in the case of God giving an inheritance to his people, he has indeed made a will. We read in verse 16, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. In verse 16, it mentions a will that a will should be made if an inheritance is to be received. And God does indeed make wills. And he has made one will in particular, which is the one that we call the new covenant. The new covenant with Christ as mediator. And that is mentioned for us in verse 15. We've been looking at it in other parts of Hebrews, but it's mentioned there again in verse 15. It says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, 
or you could say a new will, a new testament, a new will that promises an inheritance to God's people. But to get an inheritance, you need a will. But what else needs to happen for a will to come into effect? Well, you need the person, someone, to die, the person who has made the will for that person to die. You can't spend your inheritance while the person is still alive. It's not technically an inheritance, then it's just a gift. If it's a true inheritance, then someone needs to die. And that is what verse 16 and 17 say to us. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. And so if an inheritance is to come, then a will must be made and the person who makes the will must die. And we see that this is the case with the first covenant that God made, that there was death associated with that covenant. And that's what the author wants to explain in verses 18 through to verse 22. That death was always associated with the wills of God, with his covenants, with his testaments, his last will and testament. We see that in verse 18. It says, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Death was necessary for that first covenant. Verse 19 continues, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Every time you see the word blood mentioned in those verses, it's to remind you of death. That the first covenant required death to be associated with it. If the promises that were made with that covenant were to come into fulfillment, that the inheritance that was promised to the Israelites, which was a promised land, the land of Israel, was to come to them. It had to be associated with blood. But what about the second covenant? What about the new covenant that Christ has made that he is the mediator of? Is there death associated with that new covenant? Well, of course, the answer is yes. The blood of Christ is associated with the new covenant. And that's what verses 23 to 26 of Hebrews chapter 9 teach us. Look with me now at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 23. It says, It was necessary then... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ has entered a different tabernacle. He's made a different covenant, the new covenant. And is death associated with it? Yes. But it's better blood. What is the blood? The blood of Jesus Christ. Christ has died. And so then, 
the inheritance is available to the people of God because a death has come and the will is now in force. The covenant has a foundation, the blood of Christ. And so therefore we have to understand that the death of Jesus Christ is of supreme importance if you are to have an inheritance. In verse 16 it said, in the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. We have to prove the death of Christ if we are to have that inheritance. Imagine that you have a great aunt. Maybe she's very distant. You've never really met her. She's very, very wealthy. She dies. You get a letter in the mail. You now have, let's say, $10 million to your name. Marvellous. The money gets transferred to your account. You go and you buy that harbourside property that you've always wanted. And you employ a cook, because you hate cooking, or you're not very good at it. You get a, someone to help around the house, be your waiter, be your butler in the home. You start them off on a nice salary. You're really enjoying that place. Your cook has made you a lovely lunch, you're sitting out there, it's a lovely summer's day, and you're sitting there on your harbourside property, enjoying it as your waiter brings out yet another drink for you to have in the summer sun. And then the doorbell rings, and your great aunt is there. Auntie is at the door. Didn't your life just get complicated? Very, very complicated? If Christ has not died, then there is no inheritance. We must believe in the death of Christ if we are to have that inheritance. If you claim to be a Christian and you deny the death of Christ, then you aren't a Christian and you have no inheritance to come to you. If Christ has not died, as the Muslims claim, then we're all in very big trouble. Because the inheritance is not available. We as Christians must believe in the death of Christ. And we must also make that known to those who we wish to share in the inheritance with us. We cannot in our evangelism to people ignore the blood and the death of Jesus Christ. And let them know about Jesus as this wonderful teacher. Show, him, show them the Sermon on the Mount is what people love to, to say that uh, non-Christians say. Oh, the Sermon on the Mount is such a marvellous uh, teaching that you see from Jesus. I often wonder if they've actually read it because uh, some things in the Sermon on the Mount are not particularly appetising. But they will say that Jesus is a great teacher. And you may be tempted in your evangelism to say, Jesus is this wonderful person. If you look at him in the Gospels, his care and his compassion and his, uh, it's so wonderful. But you don't want to mention the death of Jesus because the crucifixion, it just gets into all kinds of icky areas and to prove that Christ died, it's troublesome. As Christians, we cannot ignore the death of Christ. And if we're to make the gospel in all its fullness known to unbelievers, then we must affirm that Jesus did indeed die. But is Christ's death sufficient 
to bring his will into effect? Does it indeed bring an inheritance? Well, that's what the author wants to remind us of in verses 25 and 26. It says in verse 25 and 26, Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. What is the author saying here in verses 25 and 26? He's saying Christ's death is sufficient. It's not as though Jesus has to keep on dying. He doesn't die again and again like the bulls and the goats. You had to have one after another. They continued to be sacrificed over the centuries. But Christ's death is sufficient. You don't have to have him die and then one person gets inheritance and then he dies again and then someone else gets inheritance. It doesn't happen that way. The death of a person once is sufficient. Well, Christ's death is sufficient. Imagine that... Your great auntie, poor great auntie, she dies again, and you get $1 million. And then you have to dig her up and resuscitate her, and then she dies again, and you get another million dollars. And you keep doing that until all 10 millions, maybe 10 times you have to do it. Get a million dollars each time. It's ridiculous. If the person dies, you get the inheritance. And that is what the author is saying to us here that Christ's death is sufficient, as we see from human death. Verse 27 says, Just as man is destined to die once, notice the word once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Just as man is destined to die once, so Christ was sacrificed once. His death is sufficient to bring the will into effect and to bring the inheritance to his people. It's actually interesting. The word once is used in reference to Christ's death four times in that passage. Uh, Three times, I should say. Verse 15. uh, No, four. Got to look at my notes here. Four times from memory. Once, again and again. He uses, particularly in verses 26 and uh, 27 and 28, the word once there, to emphasize that Christ's death is sufficient. And so we must remember that, that Christ's death is sufficient for the inheritance to come through because it does indeed make the will into effect. It brings the will into effect. Now, what is the inheritance that God gives? I've spoken about the will. I've spoken about the death of Christ. I now want to focus on what is the inheritance that we receive. Well, the passage reminds us that it's about debt forgiven, sins forgiven. Three times in the passage, verse 15, verse 26, verse 28, speak about the way that sin is paid for by the death of Christ. Think about it. You owe this time $10 million to great auntie. Great auntie is coming to collect. Auntie dies. What happens to that debt? Well, maybe someone will chase you from the estate, but it gets a lot easier if you owe something to someone and then they pass away. Maybe it's not something that's written in writing. It was just an agreement between the two of you. It goes with that person. 
How many complications in history have disappeared once someone actually died? What happens when Christ dies? The debt is cleared. The debt is paid for. He doesn't come after you anymore. The wrath of God for your sin is not against you anymore. It has been paid for in the death of Christ. You have died to sin in the death of Christ by your trust in him. And so the part of your inheritance is debt is forgiven. But the wonderful thing is your inheritance from God also includes blessing. It includes an eternal rest that is promised to us in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 is a passage that speaks again and again of the rest that we look forward to. And of course the rest of the scriptures tell us much about that rest, how wonderful it will be to be in heaven, the paradise that is to come. And so the inheritance is a marvellous inheritance that comes into effect by the death of Christ as his will His last will and testament comes into effect. Now, you may be saying, I don't need that inheritance. I'm fine, thank you very much. But you must remember then, if you don't have the inheritance of God, then your debt is not removed. And one day, the debtor will come knocking. And that is God himself. One day you will die, or the judge of the earth will return Jesus Christ, and he will call you to account for all your transgressions and punish you accordingly. At the moment, it feels like you don't have much of a debt. But the debtor is just getting ready to come and claim. The one who you owe that debt to, God himself, he will come and he will claim one day. You need the inheritance of God. That sin is forgiven. And you also need that inheritance of blessing in the next life. Now, for some of us here, getting an inheritance from a parent may not be that big a deal. You're fairly self-sufficient. And if your parents live, die, it's okay. You'll be able to survive. That's a very blessed state to actually be in. In the past, inheritances were huge matters for children because that made sure that you had a resting place in the future. The family home, the land, the house that was there. If you did not receive the inheritance when your parents died, you may have been kicked out of that home. Women were particularly vulnerable in the past. Everything was dependent upon when dad dies, what happens to his possessions because it will affect me in a huge way in the next. I could have nothing once he passes away. And so where the inheritance went was a huge matter. We're in a very privileged state here in Australia often that we aren't dependent upon our parents' estate to make sure that we have somewhere to be when they pass away because we have so much. But this comes into play then when we consider where we will be in the next life. What happens when you pass away? What do you take with you into the next life? Do you take a bank account? No, you can't take any money with you. Do you take your house, your land? No, you can't take that with you. Can you take any of your possessions? I always think it's funny when you hear of someone who's buried with their football card collection in the coffin. Some You hear of this where they're, they're worth lots and lots of money and instead of them being sold and the money given to the descendants, they make sure that the collection is there in the coffin, just wasted. 
buried with the person. How many people have done that in history? You think of the pharaohs and all the gold and stuff that could have been used for the blessing of the people is buried with the person. They're trying to take stuff with them. But you can't take anything with you. You can't even take your body with you. You're dependent on the next life for a new body. So what does that mean? That means you need an inheritance in the next life. You can't take anything with you. You're absolutely dependent in a way that no one has been dependent in this life when their parents died. I was saying that some people are dependent, particularly in a farming community, that dad leaves the farm to them or otherwise they're out of a job. But at least they've still got their body. At least they might be able to walk away with their clothes on their back. You can't even do that in the next life. So that means you need this inheritance. You need it. You can't say, thank you very much, but I'll pass. You're going into the next life with nothing but your soul. And so you need the inheritance from the Lord. So you need to come to Jesus Christ. And if you're not a believer, I encourage you to do that now. Repent of your sins. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Acknowledge that you have a debt owing to God. And then come to him and say sorry. And say, please, O oh God, may Jesus Christ die for me. May it be that my sin were on his shoulders. I trust you that you have paid for my sins by the work of Jesus at the cross. Now, if you are a Christian, you've done that. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. But what are you to do in the meantime? What are you to do about your inheritance? Well, verse 28 actually tells us. Verse 28 says that Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation, which is what we want. That's our inheritance, salvation. To those who are waiting for him. How are you described in verse 28 if you're a Christian? You're described as a person who waits. Now, when an inheritance is left to someone and the person dies who uh, leaves the inheritance behind, we know that it takes time for the money to be transferred. It's not as though great auntie dies and then the next day the money is transferred to your account. It takes time particularly if there's a big legal battle about it. Some inheritances never make it to those who it was destined for because time just travels on and the person who deserves the inheritance never actually gets it. There's accounts of that happening in history. There's one of uh, Charles Dickens' books is all about that, about this marvellous inheritance that just gets basically eaten away by lawyers and never comes to anyone. We have to understand with the inheritance of God that there's a big legal battle happening over it. There's a massive legal battle happening. Satan and his demons are on one side. They're fighting to make sure that people don't receive that inheritance. And Christ and his people are on the other. Christ is the lawyer. Verse 24 tells us that Christ is arguing on our behalf. Verse 24 says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to, what does he do? What does Christ do? To appear for us in God's presence. Satan appears in God's presence. As we see in the book of Job, he comes into the presence of God and he 
talks about God's people, like Job, and says slanderous things. We know that he asked to sift the Apostle Peter. Has God actually brought you? Uh, has Satan brought you before God? Has Satan said, I know about your servant who goes to Des Moines Baptist and bringing accusations against you? Who's on the other side to defend you? The scriptures tell us Christ is, that he is there. There's a massive legal battle going on about our inheritance. But God's people know a secret about it. We're guaranteed a win in the legal battle. Why? Because the requirements of the law have actually been met in Christ's death. There is nothing to pay for our sin because Christ has paid it all. The opposition just doesn't understand that or doesn't want to know about that. I don't understand much about Satan, but he obviously is blind in some ways because who would oppose God if you really knew who God was? So what do you need to do? Well, you need to do what verse 28 says. That means wait. You have an excellent lawyer arguing on your behalf. An excellent lawyer arguing on your behalf. He appears before God and makes a case for you based on his fulfilment of the law, which means you can't do anything to add to his defence. He knows what he's doing. You can't pay Christ anything to be your lawyer there because you don't really have anything to give him. Christ is doing all the arguing with his wisdom and he's doing it all pro bono for you. He's working there for you. So what do you need to do? You need to be like those people in a courtroom who sit next to their lawyer and they keep silent and they just sit and they sit and they sit in court and they let somebody else do all the work. Think of it as a courtroom, inheritance, Satan on the other side, inheritance is the matter, Satan is on the other side, you're there in court and Christ is arguing on your behalf. What do you do? You wait. You wait. And that is what the scriptures tell us to do again and again in the Bible, that God's people are characterized as people who wait, who wait on the Lord. Look with me at another passage in the Bible that speaks about this. Page 1199, James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Page 1199. Page 1199, James chapter 5, verse 7. Verse 7 of James chapter 5, it says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. 
The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. What is James saying there? We have to wait for the salvation to come. And what does that require then? There's a key word that's used there four times in this one. I've got this one right. It was three times for the once only, four times for patience in James. Patience, 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 patience. Four times mentioned there. Patience is associated with waiting, which means that waiting is difficult, if, particularly if you're an impatient person. I struggle with impatience. I find it difficult to wait. Particularly, I find it difficult to wait in certain situations. To wait in a queue is very difficult at the shops. To wait there while somebody else is in front of me. I get impatient with them and really, I don't articulate it in my mind, but I'm thinking, how dare you be there in front of me? Get that spot before me. Or if it's many people, how dare you be there? I should be right at the front. That's really what's going on in my mind when I'm impatient. Do people know that I've got better things to do with my time? And that's what we're doing if we're waiting for heaven, isn't it, to some extent? The things in this world are boring, really, in comparison to heaven. We're standing, going through the motions with many things that are of little value in comparison to the value of the things that we'll experience in heaven. And so we get impatient. We want heaven now. And it's particularly hard to be patient when you're suffering, when you're in pain. That's why it's so interesting that we're called patients when you go to the doctor, isn't it? What do you have to do at the doctor's surgery? Often you have to wait. You sit on a chair and you wait. And it's really hard to do because maybe you've got better things to do. But often because you're in pain and you want the problem solved. You don't want to wait for advice about it. You want it done and dusted or go home and rest. And it's the same with us in this world, as we know that we have this marvellous inheritance, a world where there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering. And so you want it now. You want your inheritance now. You don't want to go through the pain and suffering that you're experiencing. You want heaven now. And see, I think the root problem that we have with our impatience then and our lack of a desire to wait is that we don't trust as we should. That we don't trust as we should. It's a lack of trust. We don't trust the person in the queue in the shops to be quick about their business. And so we think, oh, if I have to wait, then I'm going to be here all day. We don't trust that the person operating the till will move things along smoothly enough. And we don't trust that the doctor really knows what he's doing. Some people don't go to doctors. They want their they cure instantly, so they self-medicate or they try different things. They get on the internet and they can't be bothered to wait for the doctor to give them that advice because they don't trust the doctor to be able to help them out or at least as quickly as they would like. And see, that's our problem with waiting for our inheritance often is that we don't trust that God knows what he's doing, that Christ knows what he's doing, that he's somehow withholding some of our inheritance from us now and we should seize it. And often that means that we want to sin and indulge in things that make us happy now, but in the long haul will actually hurt us. And so people walk away from Christ. Why? Because they want the inheritance now and they can't be happy to wait because they don't trust that Jesus Christ has indeed died for them 
and that he is going to get the inheritance for them. So when it comes to our salvation, we have to remember that there's nothing that we can do but trust and then wait and be patient in our waiting. We might wish to speed things up, but we can't. We simply wait upon the Lord for the inheritance that is to come. Is that what you're doing? Are you waiting for your inheritance? Patiently waiting? Or are you getting tired of waiting? Do you want Christ back tonight? Which is a marvellous concept. But how much of that does consume your thoughts? And that you're angry at God sometimes, that he doesn't come back or doesn't take you home as he should. That he hasn't given you the inheritance that you're looking forward to now on earth. That somehow he's made a mistake in not giving you the blessings of heaven now. If that is you, you struggle with impatience for heaven. You should pray and ask for prayer from others. Ask for an increased faith. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Help me to trust in Christ that he knows what he's doing. Another way to overcome the impatience of waiting is to strengthen your faith, not just by prayer, but also reminding yourself of its grounding in the work of Christ's death, that Christ has indeed died and the payment is once for all made and that inheritance is to come and you just need to rely on Christ. Also, when you struggle with impatience for something that is good, sometimes it's good to meditate upon how marvellous it will be when you finally get it. Think about heaven and that it's worth waiting for. That you shouldn't leave Christ for temporary pleasures here. That it's going to be worth the wait. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sin. To see Jesus Christ himself, heaven is worth the wait. And we should not get distracted and forsake Christ. And if that's not enough for you to help you overcome your impatience, speak to somebody at morning tea. Ask them, are you impatient for heaven? And how do you resolve that? How do you wait upon the Lord contentedly as you look forward to inheritance? Let us come before God in prayer. Let's speak with him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths contained in this passage, that a covenant has been made, a will has been drawn up, and it promises a marvellous inheritance, and that Christ has died once for all and brought that will into effect. But Lord, we know that we haven't experienced all that inheritance now. We experience some of the blessings, but there is so much to come. Lord, we pray that we would be patient, that we would wait upon Christ and his defence of us, Thank you that he intercedes on our behalf even now. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to focus upon him and his work, focus upon the glories that are to come, and so be able to wait patiently for his return. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.